This month on the Interplanetary Podcast. In the news in the month of May, the International Space Station, ExoMars, Hitomi Space Telescope, the Stochny Cosmodrome, Dragon Cargo Splashdown, Falcon 9 Landing, the Red Dragon, School Children, CubeSats and Meals, How a Rocket Works with Space Expert Jerry Stone, and all seven major rocket launches in the month of May. The Interplanetary Podcast. The exploration of space for the benefit of all mankind. Your hosts here in London, Matthew Russell and Jamie Franklin. Welcome to the third Interplanetary Podcast. It feels like we only just started. How are we on three? I don't know how we're on three, Jamie, but uh, life whizzes by. This is amazing. Welcome back, guys. Thanks for listening, as ever. So, uh, it's not rocket science. Not. not. So I've come, yeah. I've, now I've come up with a better one. Here we go. The Interplanetary Podcast, putting the ace back in space. Holy moly. I'd like that to stay. <laughs> okay, we, listeners, it's up to you. What do you think? Better vote, or worse? Yeah, vote, vote yay or nay on that one. Yeah, I, I like I, it. I quite like it. What's first up? Out in the space world. Yeah. So, uh, a monumental day for the International Space Station. It's completed its 100,000th orbit of Earth wow. on May the 16th. 100,000 orbits. Yeah, it's done 100,000 orbits. And a couple of days before that... One crew member, I don't know which one, took the three millionth photo. Wow. And I have to say, this this week, Tim Peake has been taking some ridiculous photos. He's hitting them out of the park. He is moment. hitting them out of the park. There was that one photo of Britain with the cumulonimbus cloud coming out. Yeah. It was just, it was just unbelievable. Yeah. I think that might be my favourite photo. And of wasn't time. there some sand dunes in Iran? And yeah, and about about two hours later, he yeah. took some sand dunes in Iran that looked like snakeskin. Yeah, it's incredible. Yeah, just, yeah, that was absolutely amazing. He's definitely got a career if all else fails. Yeah, <laughs> photography. I, I was, I was actually wondering what cameras they were, and then I saw a sort of rack of Nikon D fours right. hanging up on the. Yeah, hanging up, and of course Nikon. Nikon is the one I use for my astrophotography. Oh, so I feel as though me and Tim have bonded. Are you hoping to get some free equipment <laughs> maybe, from this podcast? Maybe Nikon. <laughs> well, if there's anyone yeah, from well, Nikon, Nikon listening, yeah, some Nikon, uh, maybe one of other brands sponsor. are available. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean Canon are very good as well. For absolutely, yeah, we'd be happy with anything. Yeah. To, be honest. to be honest, yeah, I mean, obviously Hasselblad is what they used on the moon. That's very still true. A, there's still a couple of Hasselblads up there. Really? Yeah. In fact, there's a really nice Hasselblad on the moon. If you want to go and get it. Uh, yeah. Might be cheaper to buy one. Um, <laughs> so, what, 100,000 orbits? Yeah, 100,000 orbits. That's quite an achievement. It is. Um, one sad one, though. The the uh, European and Russian ExoMars programme that yeah. we uh, talked about in the last podcast because mm. of the successful launch. Uh, unfortunately, they, they've decided to not go for the 2018 window for the second part, which is the rover, which they're sending. Okay. They're delaying that to the next Mars window, which is 2020. Right. And I just didn't think, I, I think they thought that they weren't going to be able to get up to speed in time, so they put it back, which is a little bit... Uh, yeah, it's disappointing, but you can understand why. It's, it is pretty disappointing. Right at the beginning of May, even more disappointing for the Japanese, was the uh, X-ray space telescope. Yes. Now, this thing's called Hitomi. Mm. And it's a, an amazing-looking satellite. The pictures of Hitomi, and, and I'll stick the pictures up on our um, podcast website. Yeah. 
Uh, the pictures of Atomi are, it looks like an amazing satellite, or was an amazing satellite. Unfortunately, this is a uh, classic case of a software error. Yes. Software updates. Have you ever had that thing where your iPhone has asked you to do a software update and you deeply regret it afterwards? Yes. Yeah. Did, did it ever cost you 76 million? I was going to say, this is a slightly more expensive <laughs> mistake. It is. It is a, a ridiculously expensive mistake. So, uh, something to do with the software update meant that the uh, while the uh, telescope was in space, it felt itself starting to spin. And so what it does is it starts up its reaction wheels. They do fine control of telescopes in space, basically. Yeah. But that made the spin worse, mm. because obviously the software was telling it one thing, and the <laughs> yeah. and, uh, and it was doing the wrong thing to, to compensate. And this got worse. And so the uh, rocket uh, stabilizers then kicked in and made it even worse. Mm. Now, all this is happening while the, the satellite's on the other side of the Earth to Japan, so the, the, the sort of control centre is uh, yeah. kind of not being able to do much about this. Uh, and unfortunately, the things span so violently that it's fallen apart. Right. Solar panels have come off and it's basically span into tiny pieces. Mm. No Which, one likes space junk. No one likes space junk. So that's, A, that's, that's bad news as well. So there's, I mean, there's so many of these satellites. I was reading another uh, thing about, you know, our favourite, the Breeze M oh, third Breeze stage. M. Where there's another one called the Block DM, I think it's called. Yeah. Or Block 4, one of the Block ones that goes on proton mm. rockets. And... Uh, they tend to blow up in space. Mm. And I thought, oh, that's, a, that's, that's pretty bad. And, of course, they put debris absolutely everywhere. Mm. It turns out 45 of these things have blown up and their debris absolutely everywhere. So it's yeah. quite... It's, you know, they're, they're sort of sitting in orbit and and then once the um, the fuel corrodes through and, and and then explodes with the other fuel and the other part of the, the rocket and... <laughs> Splashes it all yeah. over into orbit, which is obviously a bad. Explosions news. on Earth are bad, but in space, well, it, it's the more you read about, the more you read about space debris, you, you you can't you can't quite believe how bad it must be up there. It's, yeah. it's, it's it is actually becoming like a super super duper problem yeah. in space debris. So yeah, yeah. Uh, so the the Japanese, it seems that uh, the initial look at this is that uh, someone was cutting corners and it had led to this software mistake and. Uh, that's that. Yeah. The end of their telescope, which must be absolutely heartbreaking. That's very for, sad. Well, it's really heartbreaking for the scientists who's maybe spent the last 15, 20 years developing mm. it and getting it into space. And, of course, the astronomers that wanted to use it. Yeah. The international community for the science that it was going to bring. So, it's yeah, it's horrific. You know, is, there, is there talk of them potentially doing another one? Or? Uh, yeah, I mean, I would, I would think that they will want... I mean, a lot, a lot of these things... It's quite hard to get money out of governments mm. when you sort of go back to them and say, "Oh yeah, you know the last time you lent us loads of money to do this science experiment, yeah, and we, we blew it up, and, and we didn't deliver anything." Yeah, it's never a good look. No, so, so it's never a guarantee that they'll be able to replace this thing. Well, I hope they get to. Another very interesting thing happened this month. Uh, interesting for lots of ways is the new Cosmodrome in Vostochny. Aha! Opened for business. So a Soyuz 2.1A rocket uh, just at the end of April, mm. April the 28th, so after our last podcast, became the first rocket to lift off from the new and over-budget uh, Vostochny Cosmodrome. Uh, do you know what President Putin said when he arrived? Oh, what's he said? So, so 
it's over budget because a lot of the people working on this thing have been totally corrupt and have been siphoning off money. Right. And uh, the launch was a day late, so Putin was already in a bad mood, and then he has to get a hotel in Vostochny, which I can't imagine that they have particularly salubrious. No. So on the day of the launch, everyone is, of course, pale and ashen with Putin there, going, if this doesn't take off, we are absolutely doomed. Yeah. But it already basically said um, that anyone found guilty of corruption, uh, if their guilt is proven, he said, they will have to change their warm beds at home for plank beds in prison. (laughs) So, yeah, I imagine it's a particularly stressful time for the Vestochny bosses. He doesn't Doesn't really dish out empty threats. No, no, I think it's kind of... There's a whole bunch of people... If Cameron said that, you'd kind of shrug. You'd go, whatever, Sure you will. Well, yeah. But Putin's another matter. Well, and how did it go? Oh, yeah, so the, the launch was successful. Oh, a day late, goodness. but successful, yeah. So, uh, yeah, that's good. Um, Elon Musk, of course, announced in late April that he would be sending a red dragon to Mars. Yes. That was, of course, caused an, an almighty sensation on Twitter, etc., etc. Mm-hmm. So, obviously, I think in terms of Twitter traffic, that's probably the biggest news story of the month. For sure. Yeah. Um and I'm not quite sure what I think about it. Is it? I was going to say what you thought. My thoughts are: I don't, it's it's exciting and it engages the public. Can and you outline that, the bullet points of what he wants to achieve and how long it will take? Well, I think he wants to prove his technologies. The, these these landing on the barges, they've kind of sort of said it's not just about reusability of the rocket themselves it's mm. also uh, working on technology for landing on Mars mm. so it's not just the, you know this all this technology is also the technology that's involved in, in, in what they're thinking of using to, to land on Mars yeah in fact someone made a very interesting uh, point that uh, also their sort of self-driving cars in Tesla maybe uh, some of the software has found its way into into that as well oh my goodness <laughs> yeah, okay. which would be which would you know which would be quite exciting yeah, you know for real he's a clever co- he's a clever sausage clever sausage uh but yeah i mean it's it's uh, yeah i'm not still not quite convinced about the t- of go- of going to mars just yet it's 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 super ambitious there's no two ways about mm. it and of course it does revolve around the fact that he needs to get dragon heavy going which he yeah. still hasn't done so Maybe he will miss that 2018 launch window. It's hard to imagine that there won't be any mistakes on the first attempt as yeah. well, isn't I mean, it? I mean, it, you know? it had to be said, it will be phenomenal if he lands a Dragon module that's capable of carrying humans mm. on Mars yeah, what's the in two years' time. Yeah. It just seems... I, I, I just think it's, it's, it's almost too incredible to believe. Mm. Especially considering just how far away NASA are from doing it, they're only just going to be trying out their their SLS. Keep up, NASA. Yeah, it's, and if, well, of course, NASA. Of course, another thing is NASA. Of course, stumping up the cash for Elon yeah. to do all these crazy, possibly ego-driven mm. maneuvers. So we, yeah, yeah, we've got to look and out. Also, for that. In, in the news this week, uh, I think I told you about this. He said that there's a distinct possibility that we're all being controlled as simulation computer games yeah from yeah. a more intelligent I, I, I must admit I, I, this one's been going around for years and years and years yeah. ever since the, I mean the Matrix is based on that whole yeah in fact it's, 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 if it's, virtual it's, reality it's, is as good as it is now I think it's a 19th century <laughs> idea 
this mm. whole thing of simulations. But yeah, I mean, if mathematically it makes sense. If there are such things as simulations that are convincing, and you run, and obviously you'd want to run them, mm. the likelihoods of being real is less than the likelihoods of being a simulation. If any of my uh, simulators are listening, could they possibly make me a bit taller? Because I mean, surely that's easy well, they, to program, they, no, isn't they, it? No, they ran out of RAM for you. Ah. Uh, yeah, yeah. Which they ran out of ram for a, a goat farm out in the. Good, thanks. Good. Right, moving <laughs> on. Uh, um, uh, yeah. So, what else happened in the news? Oh, I t- have you seen the X thirty seven B? It's a robotic space plane that looks kind of like a mini space shuttle. Can't say I have. It's a. Uh, it's it's quite. An, I, I was, I'll show you a picture. Okay, we need to look this up. Right, so when you when you have, have a look on the on the notes of the show, which I'll post up on the interplanetary interplanetary.org.uk. Nice. Um, it'll be on there. And basically, yeah, the X-37B is an interesting uh, military plane that's highly secretive. No one really knows what it is. Mm. But it's been flying around up in space for... Uh, it finished a year orbit during May, so it's been mm. up there for a year just flying around. <laughs> Will we ever get to know? Or is this um, classified? Well, it's classified information, but then, you know, so all the X space planes, rocket planes, have always been classified because mm. they're finding out, you know, sensitive information. Well, no, not, it's not, in, not necessarily intelligence, but how things work in in space and mm. ultrasonic speeds, etc., etc. Mm. So it's, it's, it's science... But science that uh, the military want to keep for themselves for the time for the time being, because they're paying for it after all. Um, SpaceX, SpaceX, um, one of the cargo um, missions that made it to uh, the ISS, mm. also came back down and and uh, was successfully came back down to Earth and splashed in the ocean and all the science recovered from it. Nice. And Tim Peake said a lovely thing as he looked out the window and he said, Dragon spacecraft has served us well and it's good to see it departing full of science and we wish it a safe recovery back to planet Earth. Aww. So it must be quite nice looking out the window and watching this thing. Yeah. Bon voyage. The space... He hasn't Correct. got long left, Tim, has he? No, he hasn't got long left. He had it a little bit extended, didn't he? His stay, he's just but... had his suit fitted again and testing yeah. his seat. Yeah, he's been he's been uh, a lot of he's he's tweeted a lot of space rocks and a lot of the songs are yes. about how he's coming home. Yeah, which is quite nice. Yes, it's gone quickly. Yeah, it has gone very quickly, hasn't it? Uh, on the sixteenth of May, and this is a really cool story. I think is the um, International Space Station released something called the STM-SAT-1, which was a three-year-long project that involved 400 students from sort of little school, little little kids, right up to, uh, you know, high school kids. And uh, they basically were involved in making a uh, CubeSats, and that was released from the International Space Station. So it was an actual sort of... Satellite built by school children, essentially, which I think was a really cool idea. And uh, in the same time, uh, this month, uh, the uh, the astronauts ate a meal that was also kind of prepared by the students. Do we know what they ate? Uh, Yes, it was a Jamaican rice and beans with coconut milk. 
It's the kind of thing I like. Yeah, and imagine that would be quite a kind of cool yeah. thing to have. You so. can't have that every day on the ISS. No, so both the, actually the, 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 both those projects were schools from Virginia. I think it's awesome how much schools are getting involved with social media and what's happening on the space station and how interactive people like Tim Peake are. It's yeah. fantastic. Yeah, I mean, uh, there's a lot of criticism about the International Space Station, just how expensive it is. But when they do things like that, and it and it does engage, I mean, Tim Peake has undoubtedly made an, a huge contribution to to science purely by engaging children yeah. and, and kind of making them maybe create the next bunch of space scientists. Absolutely. And he he said a beautiful thing about uh, about how the teachers were really really important and what a great job they were doing. And I thought, well, good on you, Tim, because not many people stick up for. Absolutely, yeah, he, yeah. he was totally on their side. Good on you. God bless the teachers. I tell you what, why haven't we talked about this yet? And that is the Bijlow. Bijlow. The Bijlow expandable activity module that we did talk about. It's finally got to uh, inflate. Uh-huh. Now I did mention last time that it wasn't an inflatable, but it was in actual fact an expandable. But it turns yes. out I'm slightly wrong about oh. that. Oh. And it is a, it's a bit of a kind of... Good for uh, you for a minute. Well, yes, that. you know. And, it, it, apparently, uh, uh, and that's why NASA, someone who works at NASA, has yeah. kind of pointed this out on on, on Twitter, that mm-hmm. uh, actually, no, it, these things are... This one actually is inflatable. Yeah. It's considered inflatable. There's a, there's a very kind of thin definition between the two, inflatable and expandable, but yeah. uh, this is an inflatable, and they managed to inflate it right at the end of May, and uh, only a couple of days ago... Um, the astronauts started going in there and uh, doing some tests. Nice. So, yep, that's a really exciting... It's actually more exciting than it sounds, an inflatable uh, habitat, because Mm. if this technology is proven, it does make sending larger objects to space more feasible. Quite easier. It makes it a lot easier, and and then using them as habitats on the moon and on Mars. I've got a question, though. Yeah, what happens if a bit of space debris whacks the inflatable? Well, I mean, this is this is obviously one of the things that it's got to prove that it's able to, to cope sure, with. Well, yeah, yeah that it's not, you know, it doesn't pop like a balloon. I'm a little worried about that, yeah. Well, yeah, I'm sure, I mean, the, you know, like everything that has to go into... We all not know what happened in the film The Martian. Yes, that's exactly right. You know? in, in the book, it's really brilliant, that bit, where it basically they, it starts with the journey of the, uh, the scene being made in right. the factory... And how that scene then wasn't quite right, and by the time it gets to Mars, it's just it just yeah. doesn't last as long as it's supposed to. Yeah, just because of the way that it was sewn at the factory back in. And it blew up his potatoes. Uh, yeah, it's a really, really, it's quite. Bad. That is a spoiler alert. Sorry. For oh, sorry. Yeah, absolutely. Seen, yeah. If you haven't seen The Martian, go see it. That's yeah. only a small bit. Yeah. Well, we haven't really said anything. Have I think we? we sold it. If anything, yeah. If anything, we've uh, exploding we've, potatoes in space. So, so yeah, we if any, want to see if, that. Uh, the makers of the Martian could uh, maybe sponsor this. Show. So that's Nikon and <laughs> Warner Brothers. <laughs> so let's have a quick, quick look at what 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 went up in the in the month of yes. May. So the very first launch of May was on May the sixth. This was a Falcon Nine. Falcon one, Nine, which was of course it was a SpaceX. Uh, a SpaceX mission, yeah, and it was carrying a satellite called the JCSat. Nice. Uh, it flew up from Cape Canaveral, but 
it's of course the, the the big news about it was that it managed to land the booster stage back on the barge. Of course, I still love you. Yes, a repeat of the astonishing achievement that it that it achieved with the CRS space station mission yeah. about two weeks before. But this one, I have to say, is even more remarkable because it had to go a lot higher. So mm. the space station is actually quite low. It's only 250 miles or thereabouts. Yeah. So this one, it was actually quite low, but this one had to go quite a bit higher mm. because it was launching it into a different type of orbit. And because of that, the first stage is coming down at a ridiculously high velocity. Yes. And and this is it, it's just brilliant. So... As it came down, it used three engines instead of the normal one to slow itself down onto the barge. Yeah. Which is significant because it just shows how much they've nailed that technology. There's, yeah. a, there's a real big difference about using one engine to slow yourself down and using yeah. three engines to slow yourself down. That whole thing about to re, relight them and use them in that way is, is quite an astonishing achievement. Uh-huh. Uh, and of course, Elon Musk uh, couldn't help but brag, and, and his, his now famous line uh, may need to increase the size of the rocket storage hangar. Is now his sort of <laughs> thing, is one that keeps. Can I just check? Is that was that his accent? No, his accent is actually may need to increase size of rocket storage hangar because he's of course city fucking. I'm worried we're verging yeah, on that, the that, racist here. No, well. <laughs> <laughs> Apologies to any South Africans yeah, listening. You know, I think a lot of South Africans will say, that's a very good impression. Yes, they might say. Maybe a little bit District 9. <laughs> uh, a bit later on, on May the, May the 15th, the Chinese were in action mm. with their Long March 2D. Yes. So, Long March, uh, the Long March series of rockets are, of course, the Chinese mainstay of rocketry. Yes. And this was Long March 2. And it... Uh, uh, Launched a military spy satellite, so mm. no one really knows what it was. And on May the 23rd, their neighbours and rivals, the Indians, were in action. Uh-huh. And they've got themselves what a lot, what really looks like a sort of mini space shuttle, but it's it's a different kind of technology, really. Mm. But it, um, it was a test thing. It's only a, it was only a little scaled-down version of what they're... Uh, eventually hope to achieve yeah so this thing is called the rlvtd so uh, that was a really nice one to watch the launch on the video of the absolutely launch. Was really good cool. on you india now a really exciting one now the europeans were then in action uh-huh. because we are on may the 24th a soyuz and it's a, it's a sort of europeanized soyuz mm. they call them um launched galileo 13 and 14 so it launched two satellites and they were sort of side by side inside the uh, payload fairing interesting yeah it was really interesting so that's quite a it's quite a chunky thing and galileo is the european is the european gps system mm. so obviously that's satellites 13 and galileo 14. galileo 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 <laughs> I'm so sorry. No, that was good. I had it in my head and it just needed <laughs> yeah. to come out. Yeah, no, it, you, you, we can't really let Freddy references go by. Is that the joke, please? Yeah, on their way. Yeah. Now it's the end of uh, that sheer heart attack track. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, yeah so, so that's obviously satellites 13 and 14 of the Galileo. Mm. I don't know how many they're going to send up, but it's a hell of a lot more than that. So eventually there's going to be a whole heap of them. 
because you need a lot of, a lot up there to do a proper yeah. GPS system. So that's going to be all the, a lot of the Russians have their own system. The Chinese are putting up their own system. And the Indians are putting up their own system. So the European system is the Galileo, and that went right. up on um, May the twenty fourth. A surprising lack of coverage on that one. Yeah considering it was a European one. But again, I, I watched the video of the launch and that was really cool awesome. as well. Uh, and then on next day, after that, um, uh, another Falcon 9 went up. Another with one. With Thycom 8. Uh, and again, managed to get a uh, first stage back down onto the barge. Successful now, bars, the, I'll tell you what's a brilliant video, is the video of on the booster itself as it comes back down through the clouds onto the barge yeah, is, that it's is incredible. that is phenomenal yeah. it's literally that is just brilliant particularly yeah. when you remember just how big these things are yeah of course <laughs> it's just like wow if it, you're going to stick a GoPro on anything it's brilliant that's not bad is it's it? not bad is it it is genius uh, the fact that it just sort of knows where the barge is yeah they don't talk to it it's just just oh, you're probably going to be there yeah. yeah bang there you go straight Dark. straight in the middle of the, of the SpaceX logo great. yeah SpaceX marks the spot. And a couple of days later, we had um, another Soyuz uh, carrying the GLONASS-M satellite, mm. which is a global navigation satellite system, the Russian one, part of the Aerospace Defense Forces. Nice. So, And that took off from Plesetsk uh, on May 29th. And the very last launch of May was a Long March 4B. So the Chinese back in action. Yeah. Uh, And it launched uh, a couple of satellites, NUSAT-1 and NUSAT-2, which are high-resolution Earth observation micro-satellites. Rolls off the tongue. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, and it also launched a Cizhuan-3, which is a a Chinese satellite. So that was the launches for that. uh, Been a lot going on. There was a lot going on that, that month. But not as much as there's, there has, seems to have been in June. But we'll yes. talk about June in a couple of weeks' time. We will, yes. We, are, we must apologise to the listeners. We have been very late with this podcast. And one of the yeah. reasons is because both Jamie and I have been very busy human beings. We have. Been all over the shop. Yeah, you know, there's not just space going on in the world. There's, there's also life. <laughs> <laughs> but hey, we're back for we're you. Back, we're back for you, guys. So the legend that we want to talk about this month is... Uh, a lady called Yvonne Brill and I think this is really a, a what she achieved in rocket science is actually quite phenomenal so she on in on any kind of level should um, would be you know considered a legend of in course. her field and uh, in 2011 Barack Obama himself gave her a medal for her services yeah to the, rightly uh, so yeah uh, uh, she died quite recently in 2013 mm. Uh, and uh, it was a, a it's something I spotted and, and I thought it's such a she's such a brilliant story. Um, she's really famous as a rocket scientist because she designed um, a type of uh, rocket engine that is used still today in most mm. sort of uh, a, a lot of satellites for maneuvering yeah. into into their correct orbits. It's a very kind of uh, brilliant. Um, method of doing and didn't it, she simplify it so that it became more controllable yeah I mean powerful? yeah well I I think her real strong point is is chemistry that's what she was really mm. really good at so she was when she um, 
she was the only one of her siblings that uh, went to university. But what she really wanted to study was engineering. Yes, and they didn't let her, of course. No, and it was obviously in an era where they just thought, well, why would you want to do engineering? She mm. was really good at physics and chemistry at school. But they, the, none of the teachers wanted to really encourage it because they thought, well, what's the point of a woman being good at these subjects? You know, so they pointed her in the direction of mathematics and chemistry, was it? Yeah, so maths and chemistry, they could see that you know that there was some future for women in that in those subjects. Yeah. So, so when she went to university, that's what she that's what she studied: maths and chemistry instead mm. of engineering. So she became very good at maths, and then she went to work for. Um, she went for, to work for uh, a Douglas Aircraft uh-huh. in '45, and she worked on a project called RAND. Mm. Now, RAND was a secret, um, a top secret at the time, military project, uh, and it was uh, a sort of low Earth orbit satellite, mm. uh, and it was uh, used. Uh, is it scramjet technology? Uh, used. Oh no! Yeah, I'm going to go with Scram. Use Scram technology. Okay. Um, but she got a little bit fed up of using. All she really did was doing a lot of the kind of grunt computer work, mm. the, the slide rules and things like that for mm. her bosses. Uh, but because she lacked the kind of confidence in maths and physics because of this. Um, uh, because of the way that. that, that the society was that mm. she thought well, I'm going to really concentrate on chemistry so she joined the chemical group mm. which is really really a, a fantastic thing for us because with her kind of combined skills of being able to make these really hard mathematical calculations and her good chemistry she was um, really really handy at these ramjets it's actually ramjets that she's yeah. really good at um, and uh, so she ended up working for a smaller company just at the point where Rand was sort of saying that uh, these ramjets were never going to work. Yeah. But the smaller company was starting to nail it. Uh, and so, yeah, she, she was really good at that. And then she met her husband while she was studying at the University of Southern California. No. But she used to go down to the library at uh, UCLA because yeah. it was nearer. Yeah. And uh, that's where she met her future husband, who uh, said he was working on nut calibration, which was something to do with how much money you put in the machine to a ratio of how many nuts you've got out. Okay. So she thought that was quite funny and cute, and yeah. the, or whatever, and probably didn't think it was that funny. But they ended up getting married, and they had children, which she uh, then devoted a lot of time to, which was going to lead on to yeah. <laughs> another part of this story. And then... Um, uh, she went to work for RCA lab- Laboratories. Mm. Now, RCA, funnily enough, you see quite a, a lot on things like Jack Leeds and things yeah, like that. And it's, right. it is actually the same company. Yeah, it's a yeah, it's a they came up came up with a lot of kind of things from the audio industry. Yeah, but, uh, she was a chemical engineer, mm. a chemical electrical engineer, mm. and that's where she designed her most famous invention, the hydrazine resistojet. There we go. Sometimes known as EHT. Uh-huh. And uh, that basically is uses a small electrical current to heat up a non-volatile, normally non-volatile gas, that, and then that forces it out of like, kind of rocket speeds. Yes. And you're able to use that to, as a type of rocket, which is what has been used in a lot. So essentially, she designed technology that enabled 
missions to go on for longer. Yeah, well, mission missions to happen. I mean, it's it, it's a it's a, an enabling technology mm. that she's developed. Wow. Uh, and I guess you know it, it's it's she's just a brilliant person. Hats she's, off. Yeah, hats off to her. She was a very very clever woman. She literally was brilliant. Uh, and then in 1980, when she went to work for NASA, and she worked on quite a few things like Tyros, which I think was one of the very first weather satellites. Mm. She worked on Mars Observer, and she also helped design the space shuttle yes. engines themselves, nice. which, which um, are now going on to the SLS. So it's you know her legacy is quite far-reaching. And it was ever so slightly tarnished by yeah this this New this York kind Times. of sexism thing kind of runs through this story from beginning to end because when she yeah when she died the New York Times famously in fact it, it actually one became more of a story the New York Times obituary than the obituary itself yeah because it, it I think the New York Times excuse for doing a kind of sexist obituary was the fact that a lot of people moan when they see successful women and say, oh, they've sacrificed their family home life. life and their family life. And these, these are dreadful people. We shouldn't be... So uh, they're saying they wanted to highlight that. So they, want, so they thought that, that it would be good to say, no, this woman didn't sacrifice her family life. She was also an amazing uh, mother and, and housewife, etc., etc. But, right. of course... They've gone the wrong way, and uh, mm. well, it's one of those you, you can't win. Yeah, but it what? Yeah, I think it, it's an ex. It's an interesting thing, mm. but I don't want to dwell on it too much because it's outside of uh, no, rocket be... science, and it starts to become a little bit. Uh... We're not really too negative, but yeah, but I mean, it, it, it detracts from the fact that uh, Yvonne Brill. But they was quickly the... changed it and uh, and took it down. Yeah. So, so Yvonne Brill was a fantastic woman. She was. Brilliant and long-lasting. If you don't know about her, look her up, pay a bit of respect. Yeah, and there's some brilliant interviews. There's a brilliant interview that she did that you can download the PDF uh, with, uh, I think it was the Women's Engineering Institute. Yes. And there's also a, a video uh, on YouTube of an interview with her. Awesome. So, that's, uh, so yeah, it's it's that, that's actually well worth looking at because she's a remarkable woman. So what else is coming up on the podcast, Matt? So also on this uh, this month's podcast, we're going to have an interview. First interview? With, yeah, with the first, our first interview with a space expert. From where? From the British Interplanetary Society. OMG. Yep, and, uh, uh, and he'll be telling us, which is an answer to a reader's question of what is a rocket? There we go. I'm very excited about this because the last time uh, uh, Jerry did this, it was um, on Blue Peter. So he, he knows his onions. We've got a lot to live up to. We have got a lot, lot, lot to live up to. Now, Matt, you were talking about a reader question there. If any readers, sorry, listeners, listeners, even, did I say a li- did I say reader question? Oh, it was probably me. But if any listeners Listen have another question. question how can they find out more about us and get in touch? Well, you can get in touch via the website, and the website is interplanetary.org.uk. There's also a Facebook page, isn't there? There's a Facebook page, but if you go to interplan- www.interplanetary.org.uk, there's all the links to our Tumblr, which is our blog, and uh, we've got our Twitter feed, uh, and we also have a... Facebook page, there like you said. <laughs> <laughs> and what else? Uh, well, uh, well, all the links are up there on that website anyway. Yeah. So we'll be putting photos up of the rockets Matt was discussing today, and we'll also be taking any questions for the next podcast number four. Yeah. 
check it out. And uh, just as, uh, as the British Interplanetary Society news, the 15th of June there's a talk on reusable spacecraft. There we go. And on the 22nd of June is a talk on Lunar One. And how can people go to that if they want to? Well, you can go to it as a, as a guest of a member, uh-huh. or you can buy tickets on the British Interplanetary Society website, or you can join the British Interplanetary Society and go for free. There we go. What's and the website? Well, the website is bis-space.com. There we go. That website again? B-I-A-S-B-I-A-S. Putting the ace back in space. <laughs> bis-space.com. Perfectly ready. Yeah, yeah, thanks. And now for our interview with fellow of the British Interplanetary Society, freelance presenter on astronomy and space exploration, Jerry Stone. Hello, Jerry. Hi, Matthew. How are you? Uh, okay. Good. <laughs> very good. Thanks very much. Yeah. Other, well, I've been on the I've been on the tube much longer than I <laughs> wanted to today. It's been absolutely horrific. Um, thanks very much for doing this. By the way, this is brilliant. Maybe we can do it live in the uh, BIS library or something like that. Now that would be something, wouldn't it? Yeah. That that would be. Uh, I think it's certainly slightly more. Um, Salubrious than Skype somehow. Uh, yes, it's good enough for BBC Worldwide. Then uh... it's good enough for them. It's good enough for us. We had we had a listener that asked um, how a rocket engine worked, and I thought, well, that's that's quite a good one for a to, for a starter. There's three main parts to the rocket. Uh, the the payload, what it's all about, what you actually want to put into space, and the rest of it is how you get. It there and that's in two parts the engines and the fuel tanks give us a little bit of uh, info on how the, I think really yeah the question I guess is about the rocket engine itself I mean my my uh, understanding is it's got something to do with Newton's second second and third law but uh, if yes. you can all rockets uh, trace their history back to Sir Isaac Newton the great British scientists who told us amongst other things that every action there's an equal and opposite reaction. And in the case of a rocket, it's the action of the burnt fuel creating gas shooting out the back of the rocket that drives the rocket in the opposite direction. So a rocket is basically uh, in three parts. There's the payload, the thing that you actually want to put into space, and behind that is the actual rocket itself, which has two main sections. The important thing is the rocket engine, and there's also the fuel that powers the engine. Now, the fuel will either be solid fuel, like um, a November the 5th firework, or it'll be liquid fuel. On the space shuttle, they actually used both. They had a big liquid fuel tank, which fed the engines on the space shuttle orbiter, and two solid-fuel boosters on each side. But the simpler arrangement is just that you have uh, a liquid-fueled engine, or uh, quite often more than one engine together. And the engine is fed from two tanks. 
one tank is the main fuel and the other will be an oxidizer because things burn much better when they're supplied with oxygen and the same thing applies with a rocket engine so there'll be uh, some fuel which uh, in many rockets is actually liquid hydrogen and the oxidizer is liquid oxygen so these two liquids are pumped into the rocket engine where they are ignited together and the, it's basically a controlled explosion so instead of instantly burning all at once it's burned over a period of time just like uh, when you burn petrol in your car and the burning of these two propellants uh, makes them turn into gas and something as a gas will take up more room than it will as a solid or a liquid so it will try to expand and to do that it has to expand out of the back of the rocket engine nozzle and it's that gas flying out at really high speeds that sends the rocket in the other direction. Uh-huh. So that that's presumably related to the force equals mass times acceleration bit. Yes. So firstly, the rocket engine is producing a force. So knowing that force and knowing the mass of the rocket itself you can calculate the acceleration. But as the fuel is being used up, the mass is actually decreasing. And if the force remains the same, but the mass is decreasing, then it means the acceleration increases. Mm -hmm. And in fact, on the Saturn V rocket, which took the Apollo astronauts to the moon, the first stage... Uh, they cut out the centre of the five engines after a while because the acceleration was increasing and they didn't want that to get too high for the astronauts to endure. So by cutting out one of the five engines, that reduced the acceleration slightly. Mm -hmm. So that's why that engine uh, stopped firing before the others. And of course, I I, I suppose an added element to that is as you get higher up through the atmosphere you're getting less resistance so presumably your acceleration increases because of that as well that's also true Uh, and also because there's less air pressure the plume of the exhaust will expand it'll get wider and you could definitely see that with the saturn V that uh, it started off uh, almost a narrow plume and uh, as the, the rocket got higher and higher that got wider and wider and you could see it expanding it's quite mm. dramatic um, now as it happens 2016 is the 90th anniversary of the launching of the world's first liquid fuel rocket and that was carried out by an American named Robert Goddard on March the 16th, 1926. He designed the rocket himself, he built it himself, and took it out to a farm belonging to his aunt Effie in uh, Massachusetts. And although it was a very short flight, it only lasted a few seconds, but the rocket travelled 
184 feet. That's about 50% greater than the distance travelled by the Wright brothers on their first flight. <laughs> so it's... Uh, yeah, not bad. You know, it's quite a bit small. And uh, Goddard is known as the father of modern rocketry. And I've been giving various presentations or uh, a talk that I've produced uh, for this year, which is called Nell, Esther and Aunt Effie. <laughs> so Nell was the name of the rocket. Esther was the name of his wife who took all the famous photos and also filmed a lot of his work and was later recognised as the first person to be uh, a documenter of space activities. And Aunt Effie, as I've said, uh, was his relation. She wasn't actually a direct aunt, but a slightly more distant relation. <laughs> but she owns the farm where the flight took place with the rocket allegedly coming down in her cabbage patch. <laughs> so I'm assuming that the Goddard uh, Centre and all the Goddard references at NASA are named after said, that, said Goddard. Right. Uh, early on, uh, the US government uh, were completely indifferent to Goddard's work. They really weren't interested, even when he went to them and offered help. Um, and uh, also the newspapers were pretty appalling. Firstly, they couldn't understand his work, even though he explained it very clearly. But they assumed that they knew better than he did. And a prime example of that was the New York Times, who wrote an article saying that he should know that a rocket needs something better than a vacuum to push against. Uh, whereas, of course, a rocket works best in a because there's no air resistance to slow it down uh, and it doesn't need anything at all to push against. Yeah, well, I mean, presumably that's the main advantage of a rocket engine over, say, a normal uh, a normal aircraft engine, for example. And, yes, and that's exactly why we use rockets and why we need to use rockets to get to space because uh, jet engines and propellers all work by pushing air back behind the vehicle and there is no air in space so they won't work there yeah i mean with the aircraft engine is there is is there a form where you could have an aircraft engine that that was air breathing and then it would it would swap to a, a rocket form as it got to higher altitudes for uh, so that you could actually use it as a spacecraft because obviously the one thing that i've always think people in their minds think well obviously if you just carry on flying a jumbo jet and just keep going eventually it'll end up in space but of course we know that's not true but but, no. what, but why isn't it but, true um, so virgin galactic are partly on the way to this with their spaceship one which became the first privately built uh spacecraft to uh, fly more than twice within 10 days and won the X Prize back in 2004. That was a two-stage vehicle. There's a, an air-breathing jet-powered carrier aircraft which carried the spacecraft up uh, to a given height. Then the spacecraft was released and fired its solid fuel engine to go up and reach space. However, 
it would be more efficient if you could have one engine that could carry out both functions. And there isn't one that exists yet, but it's being worked on. There is one being developed. It's uh, called Sabre, and it's the brainchild of Alan Bond, who was one of the men behind Hotel, the uh, vehicle which unfortunately was cancelled by the UK government. But this is an engine that's going to power a new vehicle called Skylon. And this is a British development. And what the Sabre engine will do is it will power this space plane. So it'll take off on a runway and the engines will be fed by um, onboard fuel, but also uh, they'll be taking in air at the front and blasting it at high speed out the back. So that's providing the initial thrust. But once it reaches about uh, Mach 5, then the front of the engines are encased and uh, a nozzle closes over the front of those and it re then relies purely on the onboard liquid oxygen and hydrogen and the engines work as rocket engines so they provide both functions they you know, act as air breathing engines and as rocket engines and by doing it in this way you don't have to carry all of the fuel that you need on board to start with because you're using the air. It takes in the air and chills it down to uh, around zero in a hundredth of a second. And that is amazing technology. And that has already been proven. Hmm. It's been tested and it all works. So Skydon should be able to carry about 15 tonnes up to orbit, release the payload, a satellite or whatever it is, and then close its payload doors, uh, re-enter the atmosphere, come back to Earth and land on a runway. And then after whatever maintenance is needed and refueling, it should be ready to fly in about two days. Uh, now that, I mean, when I... Obviously, that it's it's that's it's an incredible it's an incredible uh, machine, the Skylon, and and it's a really exciting prospect for particularly the UK because it feels like it's a homegrown project. And I remember the Hotel really really well as a child and being very excited about it. Uh, but in terms of going up against, say, Elon Musk's SpaceX, where he seems to be really ahead of the game and being able to get these first stages back down undamaged. What's the advantage of the Skylon model over the SpaceX model? Well, the uh, the rocket engines that uh, SpaceX is using are obviously not as complicated as the Sabre engine, so they'll be cheaper to produce. And certainly Elon Musk and the SpaceX team deserve uh, huge congratulations for their work on recovering the first stages. That is also going to bring down their launch costs because if you don't have to throw away the launch vehicle every time, then gosh, that's going to be uh, uh, so much cheaper. But um, the, the an advantage of Skylon 
is that uh, it'll have this payload bay and you can put all kinds of different things into that, including uh, a crew uh, compartment. Uh, Skylon, I should mention, is designed not to need pilots, though there are options to have pilots on board in other versions later on. But its main work initially is being seen as effectively a satellite launcher. So there will be probably less maintenance needed between flights on Skydot than there would be on uh, the, uh, the, the, the Falcon 9 because you've got to check over the engines, make sure that uh, they're working. I mean, they had to do this with the Space Shuttle as well. Hmm. Uh, no space shuttle ever landed uh, and was then hoisted up against a tank with boosters and taken out and launched again. They removed all three engines and checked them over, and it wasn't necessarily those same three that went back on it for its next flight. And it was really the cost of the, the maintenance and the checking of work on the engine and uh, and other parts that made the cost of launching the shuttles uh, so high. Yeah, I mean, I sometimes get the feeling that the space shuttle has given space planes, uh, winged rockets, as it were, a kind of bad bad name because of the the sheer cost. They ended up costing a lot more than they thought it would. Well, yes. Now, one of the original proposals was that both the launcher and the orbiter would be um, vehicles that would come back and uh, land on a runway and be used again. So the whole system would be completely reusable. The problem was that this meant that the launcher vehicle would be much more expensive to develop, and it was decided against that, uh, which is okay in the short term, but for long term, when you want to do hundreds of launches, it's obviously more expensive that way. The uh, the solid rocket boosters were always recovered, but well, apart from uh, one flight where they uh, got lost at sea, but the external tank was lost every time, and so that had to be paid for. Um, although they did do everything they could to reduce the cost. For example, the fuel pumps that transferred the fuel from the tank to the orbiter, uh, were actually placed on the orbiter. So they were sort of sucking the fuel out of the fuel tank. Mm. How do they pump that much fuel to, to, into, the, into the rocket? How, how, does, how, how does that pump work? Presumably that's a, a really important part of the engine. Yes, yes. I mean, they have turbo pumps on them, which uh, are, can be incredibly powerful. For example, on the Saturn V, the F1 engines burned two tons of fuel every second, and that's for each engine, and that's pretty staggering. So those pumps, it was stated, were powerful enough to drain an Olympic-sized swimming pool in 12 seconds. (laughs) That's incredible, isn't it? 
I've got a, a, re- a really good engine that I, uh, that, uh, that I was quite disappointed didn't take off yesterday was the, was the three that were on the bottom of the Delta IV Heavy. I would assume <laughs> I've seen them in just standing on their own with, with someone stood next to them, and they're, they're much bigger than I thought they were. I mean, they're huge, aren't they? Oh, it's just, <laughs> they're just incredible. So yeah, I'm I'm quite looking forward to when that actually takes off and and I'm watching it. I, I still haven't got round to seeing a, a, an actual being there in the flesh uh, rocket launch. But uh, you need to make sure that you do that. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> there, is, there is absolutely no comparison between seeing a rocket take off on TV and being there in person. On TV, usually they zoom in on the rocket itself and follow it up. Whereas when you are there, you actually see it moving away from the ground and you really get the impression that it's flying. The other thing is on TV, they have microphones close up to the launch pad. Now, at the the space shuttle launch pads, which previously used for Apollo, uh, nobody apart from uh, the rescue team is closer than three and a half miles. And at that distance, it takes about 15 seconds for the sound of the engines to reach you. Wow. So uh, the engines light up, uh, say about five seconds before liftoff. So the engines reach full thrust, they are burning, and then the rocket takes off and it's cleared the tower. And it's not until then that the sound of the engines reaches you. All you've got before then is the sound of people cheering and clapping and clicking and whirring of cameras. And then suddenly you get this wall of sounds that hits you and you can feel your stomach vibrate. Yeah. It's a really incredible experience. Well, uh, well, I know with the shuttle that the the noise at the actual, on the launch pad, was so intense that they have to water it down to stop it from vibrating the orbiter to, to pieces. The, the great clouds that you see coming out each side of the launch pad uh, are not smoke, or they are not exhaust from the engines. That is water that's been turned into steam by the heat of the exhaust, and these thousands and thousands of gallons are dumped out. It's not just to keep the pad cool, but to cut down the acoustic energy that's created by the noise of the engines. And if that wasn't done, yes, it would literally vibrate the vehicle apart. Yeah, I mean, for, for that, that, as an acoustician myself, I know that, that acoustic um, energy is, is, is something that's normally quite a, 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 an irritating low energy source uh, yes. and, and like trying to get anything out of any uh, uh, is, is quite difficult because it's normally such a low energy but it's incredible isn't it that it, it's got to such a high energy at that point that it's 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 dangerous to a spacecraft and how do they stop the presumably as the gas comes out the hotter the hotter it is the the, the more acceleration it has so how do they stop the nozzle of the engine itself melting? Well, that's a, a very good question because this is burning at very high temperatures indeed. And the usual way to do this is to circulate either fuel uh, from the rocket itself or um, 
liquid from the turbo pumps around the engine nozzle. So it isn't a solid nozzle, but it's hollow. And there's tubing around that, and they pump this liquid around it. And if they do that with the rocket uh, fuel um, and something like liquid oxygen, liquid hydrogen, they're very, very cold indeed. Mm. So that will help to keep the engine nozzle cool. Well, yeah, and uh, yeah, but well, I mean that's a that's an ingenious way of cooling it down. It was. Is there any is there any rocket scientist who's uh, who who is kind of considered the inventor of that particular technique? Because it seems like a very novel and a neat solution to the problem. Um, so the idea of regenerative cooling was put forward by Carl Siemens in eighteen. 18- 57, and it was first demonstrated by James Dewar of the Dewar Flask fame on the 10th of May 1898 uh, when he was able to liquefy hydrogen. And the idea was mentioned by the grandfather of space travel, Konstantin Tsiolkovsky, back in 1903. But the first regeneratively cooled engine was built by Robert Goddard in 1923. But at the time, he rejected uh, the use of, of that because having gone through the construction, he decided it was too complex. But he did come back to use it on his later rockets. Wow! Yeah, that is. It's interesting that that's a a nineteenth century invention. You'd, I'd never have thought that. Uh, well, uh, it's nineteenth century in its concept. In its concept, yeah. Yes. But yeah, good old Goddard again. Then the modern rocket engine doesn't seem to have changed much since, particularly since the Saturn days. Is there any is is there any kind of future development that looks that's always kind of hung there but not? not seem to have gone anywhere because they, they do it, it seems that the the engines say on on the delta four are very similar to the engines on the saturn five yes basically it's just a question of uh, what materials you use what fuel you use um to get the desired thrust um, and there's different ways of doing it so the soviet n1 rocket which was intended to land cosmonauts on the moon uh, unfortunately failed on its three test flights and all three rockets were destroyed in flight and part of the problem there was the complexity of its rocket system they were unable to build large powerful rocket engines so in order to get the total thrust, they had lots of smaller engines, and there were over 30 on the first stage arranged in a huge circle with software that uh, if it detected a malfunction in one engine, it would cut that engine out and also cut out the engine on the opposite side so the thrust would be balanced. But, uh, no, it, they just couldn't get uh, the thing to work. Now, the Saturn V, first stage, its five F1 engines together generated uh, 7.5 million pounds of thrust. 
so one and a half million pounds each. Uh, together, they produced 180 million horsepower, which was more powerful than all the cars in Britain put together at the time. Uh, well, that used, it, used a fuel called RP-1, uh, which was a, a form of kerosene. Uh, an RP-1 basically being <laughs> rocket propellant number one. <laughs> uh, and this was uh, essentially, it was a, a, a variation on paraffin, which led to, uh, to the line uh, at the time, for those who remember the other product, that America went to the moon on SO Blue. <laughs> oh, wow. Uh, but uh, the, the, the upper stages of the Saturn V, the uh, second and third stage, used uh, a, an engine called the J2. Five of them in the second stage, one of them in the third stage. And these were powered by liquid oxygen and liquid hydrogen, which is a much more effective, a much more powerful mix and uh, can provide greater efficiency as well. So, in fact, one of the effects of that is because they burn together so efficiently, they don't produce a visible flame. Mm. So the famous films that were taken from on board the Saturn V on the, its test flights, looking backwards, you could see the first stage detach and fall away, and you could see the interstage fall away, and the second stage engines are firing, but you can't see a flame. Hmm. And you can even see this with film from the ground. When the first stage detaches, you can see the glow from the second stage engines as they ignite, but there's no flame at all. So for the, uh, so for the people who say, we didn't go to the moon, because if you look at the lunar module taking off from the moon, there is no flame. So obviously this is in a studio and it's just being pulled up on wires. Well, you would say there has to be a flame if you don't actually know anything about rockets and hadn't bothered to do any research. <laughs> yeah. Now, so with the liquid hydrogen and liquid oxygen style rocket engine, am I right in saying that they're known as cryogenic engines? Is that right? Yes, it's be because the fuel is not uh, room temperature. Uh, in order to get oxygen and hydrogen to liquefy, you have to cool them down a huge amount. Liquid oxygen, I think, is about a minus 140 odd, and uh, liquid hydrogen, about minus 200 degrees. Now, that is so incredibly cold that obviously the tanks had to be incredibly well insulated. And uh, there's another statistic from the Apollo days. Um, if you were to put um, ice inside the Saturn V fuel tanks, they are so well insulated it could take 80 years before the ice melted. <laughs> that is a, a major piece of technology in itself, and uh, the engineering required for that. Um, it, it takes a lot of know-how to get that right. Yeah. Because you, you you see yesterday when the Delta Four was Delta Four Heavy was on the launch pad, you could see the you could see that kind of um, mist coming off the top of the all all the three 
um, booster stages. Look, well, when the, the rockets are fueled up, um, because they're, they're, there's usually some slight evaporation, and uh, so there's that means that the fuel will be um, turning from liquid into gas. And when it does that, it expands, and you don't want to have too much expansion because there's a risk that you're going to burst the tank. Yeah. Uh, well, obviously, they're, they're made to be very strong to allow for that. But whilst the rocket is fully fueled and waiting on the pad, then there's valves to allow the escape of this gas. And uh, then shortly before launch, those valves will be closed and the pressure will deliberately be allowed to build up inside the fuel tanks. And part of that is to help force the fuel down to the fuel pumps. As on the, the Saturn V, the excess hydrogen that came off the, uh, the upper stages uh, was actually led to a nozzle where it was burnt. But uh, the only time you could ever see that was on Apollo 17 because the launch took place at night and you could see the flame. On all of the other flights during the daytime, the flame was so pure that you couldn't see it. Wow. So the, with the Saturn V, the, if the F1 engines on the first stage are being essentially paraffin fueled, how, what was the cooling mechanism of the F1 nozzles? Um, I believe that the, that fuel itself was circulated around the nozzles. So, so the so the oxidizer on that was liquid oxygen. Oh, so it's still okay. So the liquid oxygen is still the oxidizer. Okay, yeah, I get that. Uh, one other thing to mention about rockets is the way of measuring their efficiency, and uh, you want to know how much impulse. A rocket engine can produce and so it's measured as the impulse per unit of propellant and the term is called specific impulse and it's either measured as a speed the exhaust velocity or as a time in seconds so an engine that gives a large specific impulse will be uh, really what you're looking for. So the Saturn V um, F1 uh, has uh, those engines had a specific impulse of 304 seconds. The Space Shuttle solid motors had a specific impulse of 268 seconds, so they weren't as powerful. Whereas the Space Shuttle main engines, those three, which did burn liquid oxygen and liquid hydrogen had a specific impulse of 453 seconds so about 25% more efficient than the Saturn V's first stage and, and those are the engines that I believe that are being that are now going on to the SLS is that correct? Uh, yes essentially it's a version of, of those and uh, <sighs> we hope to see the thing flying before <laughs> we all 
I've got to stop you there, Jerry, because I've got I've got to go and pick up my son from Scouts. <laughs> but thank you very much. Thanks very much for taking the time. I'll do a nice little edit of it. That'd be great. Do you believe the frontiers of space are there to be explored? Are you the sort of person who looks up at the night sky and sees more than points of light? When you first heard the words, "That's one small step for a man, one giant leap for mankind." and watched images of the first man to set foot on another planetary body? Did the hairs on the back of your neck stand on end? If the answer is yes to any of these questions, why not join the British Interplanetary Society, who have been striving to further mankind's quest into space since 1933? The British Interplanetary Society. From imagination to reality. B-I-S hyphen space dot com.